epistle lesson this morning is found in the second half of Romans chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we come expectantly and eagerly to your word. You have revealed to us the path and way of salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus. God, we know that our own sinful condition rebels against this. But convince us and draw us near this morning that we would be drawn to trust in your gracious promise and all that you have done for us through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we've considered the role of faith in the Christian life. Paul is on an extended argument here, and it begs a very simple question. In fact, some of you may find it simplistic this morning to ask the question, what is faith? Many would say that faith is a blind leap. It involves embracing the impossible. The quintessential expression of this type of faith is the John 3.16 sign in the fourth quarter at an American football game. What exactly John 3.16 has to do with the football game, I'm still not entirely certain. Or what it has to do with a desperate situation where your team is losing But yet faith, for some reason in American culture, has become associated with the unlikely or the impossible. And so whatever the impossible may be, we will say, well, I have faith. Others would say, no, faith involves believing that God exists. It begins and ends here for the most part for many. Faith is simply belief in things that cannot be seen. That's what it means to have faith. And then, of course, others get more specific about what it means to have faith. 
They claim that faith is believing in the events surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's signing up to certain historical things. It's intellectual assent to those historical facts. But none of this gets at the Bible's description of faith. In Romans 4, we saw that the Apostle Paul presents Abraham as an example to us. He's not given to us, he's not given to us as a virtuous moral example that we are to imitate in order to put a claim on God. That's not the way we're, we're to follow Abraham. Rather, what we learn from Abraham is that he is a prototype of an ungodly person who God reconciles to himself through faith. That yes, we esteem Abraham and we admire him, but not because he was some super Christian who could put a claim on God, but rather because Abraham learned the path of humility and the way of reconciliation was through faith and the promise of God. And it is through Abraham here in Romans 4 that we learn once again exactly what faith is. And so there's three things in particular that we learn from Abraham's example of faith this week. We'll focus very briefly this morning on the purpose of faith. That is why exactly God has said faith is the means of being counted righteous. We'll look at the difficulties of faith. That is the obstacles that Abraham encountered and that we encounter as well. And finally, we'll consider the object of faith. That is, what does faith behold? And so first, we see the purpose of faith. In verses 13 through 15, Paul is once again taking on his Jewish contemporaries who found and believed that they could put a claim on God that God had to count them righteous because of their possession of the Mosaic law and their performance of that law. They believed that the inheritance that was promised to Abraham belonged to them because of their obedience. This moralism was alive and well, and so Paul had to address it. It did live then and there, but we're not immunized from this either. It also carries on here and now. It's a religious expression that also that often passes in the church. It prioritizes behaviors and virtues as the really important thing. That at the core of it, that is what religion is about, people will say. And so American Christianity has been compromised by this in the past with fundamentalist expressions of faith that focus on lists of behaviors to avoid. All negative, do not do this. It's also been compromised in its liberal expressions, focusing on improving the world through charity and kindness and all the things that we're supposed to do. On both sides of that equation, there's lots of moral angst. While they disagree on many things, they share in that. A moral angst and a talk of improvement and how to better themselves or better the world, but no real talk of reconciliation and the path that God lays out for that. And what Paul says is that when that becomes the focus, when the works of the law, doing righteous things 
in order to put a claim on God, when that becomes the focus, that it nullifies faith and voids the promise of God. It's a devastating critique. Here's the problem. What Paul explains in verse 15 is he lays out the problem here when he says, for the law brings wrath. That is, through the law, we learn the knowledge of God's will. That is what is good and pleasing to God. We're told that that law is holy and just and right. There is no deficiency in the law. But what the law does not deliver to us, it doesn't give us any power in order to keep it. And so the law functions as something like a mirror. And what Paul was saying to his Jewish contemporaries is that when we look in that mirror, what we see is disgusting. That yes, his Jewish friends found themselves superior and righteous above the Gentiles. But of course, he's argued for three chapters leading up to chapter 4 that Jew and Gentile share alike in the same fallen and broken condition that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we look in the mirror honestly, this is what we behold and this is what we see. But when we are determined to put a claim on God through our obedience, guess what the very first thing we must shut off is? We must turn away from that mirror. Because we need a proper self-esteem, we need to think that we are capable of somehow putting that claim on God. And so the hallmark of a works-oriented religion is a lack of self-introspection, a lack of willingness become, to come before God's word and to give an honest assessment, a lack of willingness to allow God to search us, to be undone in God's presence. And many people think, well, no, if I'm undone, then I'm unloved. But friends, it's just the opposite. And so it's important to ask the question, why would any of us be motivated to shut down this idea that we're reconciled to God by faith? Paul explains it in verse 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We learn here that faith is the instrument and that it depends, and it depends on faith in order that the promises of God may rest on grace. And that is that faith is not earning anything from God. Faith is the vessel, it's an instrument that receives what God freely gives. It delivers to our mouths what can then be consumed and digested. It is like a chalice. And it is just here that we're insulted by the word of the gospel. Because what we're told, that we have nothing to contribute to the equation of our salvation, belong beyond the sins that we've committed famous quote of Archbishop Temple, because we have to become wholly reliant upon grace. And friends, it is this assault on our independence and on our autonomy that the grace of God makes. And this is why we so often stubbornly resist and want to retreat to a works-oriented religion 
where we can somehow earn and gain and put a claim on God. And it is because of this fundamental fact that we love our independence. And when we're told that we must depend wholly upon the grace of God, that our only hope in front of God is a free gift from him, we want to barter and we want to negotiate. We want another workaround so that we're not put in that helpless position. But the purpose of faith is for us to see our helplessness and for us to be reconciled to God through a free gift. This is the purpose that we find here, that we depend upon grace. The second, in the passage, we also see the difficulty of faith. In verses 18 through 21, we find a fairly dense summary of Abraham's history. You find this laid out in the book of Genesis from chapter 12 through chapter 24, Abraham's history. Abraham was a man who was called by God. He was not reconciled to God, but God initiated to him and promised him three things. Abraham was promised land, he was promised blessing, and he was promised descendants. Abraham received that promise already at an advanced age, and then for years he followed after God, but yet the promises had not been fulfilled. And so in chapter 15, Abraham asked God what was going on with that. He says, you promised that my descendants would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, yet I have no heir. And friends, this was the difficulty, the tension of faith for Abraham. God gives him the sign of circumcision. He promises Abraham that he would make good on his promise. The sign of circumcision was to confirm and strengthen his faith. But yet Abraham still daily had to live with this simple fact that when he looked at his own body, when he considered his age, when he considered that he was not in his prime, you could say, that he was past the age of childbearing and so was his wife, yet God had promised that a son was to come. How exactly was that going to happen? How was God going to make good on what he says? And so follow with me in chapter 4, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Calvin captures it beautifully, the crisis that Abraham was confronted with. He writes, all that he could see, speaking of Abraham, in or around himself was opposed to the fulfillment of the promise. So what did Abraham do? As he sees that everything around him is arrayed against the promise, he therefore ceased to think about what he could see and as it were, forgot himself in order to make room for the truth of God. And friends, this is the challenge of faith. God makes incredible promises to us. And when we look on the world about us, they can definitely seem improbable. They can seem like they will not be fulfilled. It can seem like God is long in coming. 
When we consider our circumstances, we see loads of opposition. And the challenge for us is to forget ourselves, to turn our eyes away from those obstacles that we can see and that we can add up in order to make room for the truth and the promise of God. And so Abraham, in the midst of these rigorous circumstances that would press anyone, we learn that in hope against hope, in believing that God would be true to his promise, that God would confirm, that God would validate, he trusted God. Paul tells us that he grew strong in faith, And friends, you and I are in the same position as Abraham. Paul tells us that these things were not written down just for Abraham's sake, but also for you and for me. Because we too have received extraordinary promises from God. In fact, you may think that these promises made to Abraham are more extraordinary than what you have today. That would be a gross error and underestimation. Because what we have today is the fulfillment of everything that was signified here in the promise to Abraham that he would have a son, that Isaac would come. We have the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus. And what Jesus promises you is that you are righteous in God's sight. But yet when you look at your life, you find yourself covered in your sins. And so you are left with that dichotomy. Righteous, counted righteous by God as a gift, and yet covered in your sins. We're also promised that the meek, the gentle, the lowly will inherit the earth. And yet when we look at the world around us, what do we see? Do you see the meek, the gentle, and the lowly running things? No, you see the powerful and the unjust operating in the world without any regard for God. We're also told that we'll inherit a new physical body and that we'll live in the life of the world to come. And yet we live in a world filled with death and decay. We have funerals and we lose friends like Jim Brewer. We see that and we're reminded of it on a daily basis. Friends, this is the tension that we live in and inhabit, that we have the promises of God that have been given to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and yet we don't have the full installment of all of that promise. And so we're invited to not waver in unbelief, but to grow strong in faith, trusting that God will make good on every one of his promises. And friends, it's critical to remember Genesis 15 and what happens on the backside of Abraham's encounter with God. When he asked God, what, is, I'm, what am I to do? I have no heir, and yet you promised that my descendants would be as many as the sands upon the seashore and the stars in the sky. What am I to do? God confirms his promise, and then we learn that Abraham believes God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And then Abraham, he falls asleep. And in his sleep, he has a dream. 
And in the dream, he sees the pieces of an animal that have been severed. And it was somewhat of a nightmare. And we learn there in the passage of Abraham's terror. Because what this was was something known to Abraham and anyone else in the ancient world, that this was a covenant ceremony. And it was common in covenant ceremonies for an animal to be dismembered and arrayed along the sides of the path. And then as you took your vows, you would pass through the pieces of the animal, swearing your faithfulness to the one whom you served. And what you were communicating was, if I do not keep my vows, may this happen to me. May I be dismembered like these animals. Abraham's terrified. But then he sees that he was not the one called to pass through the dismembered animal parts, but rather there was a figure of God who passes through. That God swears on his own life that he will keep this promise. And the fulfillment of all of that promise is our Lord Jesus. And friends, this is our guarantee and our certainty that God has sworn on his own life and in the middle of all of our difficulties, in all the ways that when we look at the world and it presses us with opposition to the promise, that we can press back and know that God has sworn by himself. And so the promises of God must become more impressive to us than the circumstances around us. Grow strong in faith. Because there is real tension. You will taste that and experience that week by week and year over year of your Christian walk. But yet more impressive and stronger than all of those tensions is the grace of God and his promises. And finally, we see also in the passage the object of faith. You turn with me in verses 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It is critical that we talk about the role of faith, that it is the instrument through which God counts us righteous. But it's also critical as we do so that we also place a qualification on that. Because you see, we're not counted righteous because of the quality of our faith. Rather, we're counted righteous through faith because of the object. That is what we believe in, or rather, who we believe in. By faith, what we see in these final verses is that we're united to Jesus, the one who came and died for our trespasses, who underwent the burden of our sin on the cross, but then who was yet raised because he was the righteous one without sin. And when we behold Jesus in faith, when we look to him, we share in his death and we share in his resurrection that the righteous one who lives at God's right hand, that we are in him and now counted righteous, that despite our sins, we are counted righteous before God. 
Paul is here echoing the language of Isaiah 53. There it reads, by his knowledge, speaking of the coming Messiah, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In his death, Jesus suffered for your wrongs and for my wrongs. He was raised because he is the righteous one without any sin. And this is the object in which we focus on. This is the object in whom we believe that united to him by faith, our sins are not counted against us. The ledger is cleared. And then we're also given this positive attribute that we're counted righteous by God. And this is the confidence of our reconciliation with God. It depends upon grace, and it's guaranteed by the accomplishment of someone outside of ourselves. It makes us wholly dependent. And this is the purpose of faith, is to get outside of yourself, to rely upon another and his accomplishment on your behalf. To look to him, the object of a true and living faith, Jesus. And it's then, with purpose and object clear, that the difficulties that we experience can and will be overcome. Friends, the difficulties are real. Abraham could have melted. You can feel the weight of his tension in reading the passage. And yet Abraham did not waver, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Because he was sure of the purpose of faith. He was sure of the object of faith, the promise of God fulfilled in Jesus. And so we can mount any difficulty within that. And so let's give ourselves fully to him and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we confess all of our weakness, that when we look at your promises, we are often overwhelmed by the opposition we find in the world to those promises, that that opposition is far more impressive to us than troubles and conflicts and tensions we see, and so help us to grow strong in faith, that we would see the purpose of faith to be wholly reliant and dependent upon you. And that we would behold the object of faith, our Lord Jesus, who died on our behalf and was raised. And so overwhelm those difficulties. Help us, God, we ask in Jesus' name.